The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us this week. You know, we have a topic that we have yet to cover because there's been yet to be a book that covers this topic. And I'm so excited that we're going to be able to to breach this topic with you uh, today on Go Green Radio. You know, we've talked a lot on Go Green Radio about the impact that human population has on the environment and has on global warming. But what we haven't talked about is how, as parents, we can raise children who have have either a low carbon footprint or no carbon footprint. And our guest today is Kaya Chatterjee, and she's written a book that I'm really excited about. It's called The Zero Footprint Baby, How to Save the Planet While Raising a Healthy Baby. And it talks about her personal journey to create a home, to create a a food and transportation and clothing uh, situation around her baby that actually reduced her overall carbon footprint. And that is the good news for those of us who understand what's going on and the impact and the relationship between human population and the environment, but still desire to have children. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Kaya. I'm so glad to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Well, first of all, I did love your book, and I only wish that it had been on the shelves when I was first having children. In my opinion, this ought to be right up there with what to expect when you're expecting, because it's a great book, and it's really anecdotal and fun to read. Um, before we get into the particulars of the book, I would love to have you share with our listeners your reasoning behind writing the book. What was it that you were hoping to accomplish by putting your story and your research out there? Thanks so much, Joe. Well, I was, uh, really what I was doing was putting out all this research that I had already done. So when I was pregnant, I had all these questions about, well, you know, what, what is the carbon footprint of, of these kinds of diapers versus these kinds of diapers? And does it matter what kind of prenatal choice I make, uh, in terms of, of, of the care I receive? And I started doing all this research and I realized that I was having to go into, you know, the original literature and, and scour through, you know, medical journals and, and scientific journals to get this information. And I just thought, that's crazy that this isn't just out there for people who want to know the answers to these questions. And so once I had compiled all that information for myself, I, I felt somewhat compelled to, to try and put it out there in a format so that people could use it so that people wouldn't have to go back and do all of that original research for themselves if they were really passionate, like I am, about having the lowest carbon footprint possible associated with my baby and, and doing that in order to protect their own babies. Mm-hmm. Well, there has been a lot of attention, as we mentioned earlier, about the impact that human population growth has on carbon emissions and other environmental damage. And there's been so much 
attention given to this, that even some celebrities and outspoken, you know, people of childbearing years have come out and been very public about their decision not to have children, a very conscious decision because of the planetary ramifications. Some environmentalists, and some have been on this show, have even gone so far as to be critical of people who decide to have children. What is your experience with this spectrum of the environmentalist movement, and what's your response to that? So I, I definitely have friends who feel that way, um, who, who are still good friends to this day. Um, and, and, you know, I might be a little bit unusual as a parent in that you know, I, I think it's actually a legitimate point to point out that, you know, probably the most environmental option is not to have kids. That wasn't the choice that I made. Uh, that's not the choice that a lot of people make. And so I think that it's important that we have resources for people who don't make that choice. And I think that, you know, and I say this in my book, personally, I would rather have a parent of three who's truly dedicated to changing the trajectory that we're on, uh, you know, of polluting more and more and more and not having a, a really livable planet for our kids to be in than to have an adult who maybe doesn't have kids and isn't creating their own pollution, but also doesn't feel that same kind of passion and doesn't have as much at stake. I I mean, parents really have so much at stake when it comes to tackling climate change in particular. And, you know, as a parent, I I really feel like it's my job and I owe it to my son to, to tackle climate change, to take on the fossil fuel industry, to switch to renewable energy. And I feel like that that's while, while people who aren't par- parents certainly feel passionate about this issue, they don't quite have as much at stake. And so, so I think it's important for them to understand the perspective of th- that parenthood brings and that mm-hmm. might actually bring sufficient passion that we can get over the hump and get to the point where adding kids to the planet doesn't, in fact, cause more pollution because we're using relatively pollution-free technologies. Right, right. I mean, there there is a, a scenario under which, you know, we really could switch to finite energy sources versus fossil fuels. There's a scenario where, you know, we learn to consume less um, and, and we teach our children to do that. And I have personally faith and hope that we could do that. I have faith in my fellow man and woman. So um, so I, I agree with you on that. I, I'd love to start by having you help our listeners understand how a carbon footprint is measured to begin with. What are some of the components of our lives that emit carbon and what are some of the ways that we can offset those emissions? Talk about your your own formula for calculating your carbon footprint and your baby's carbon footprint. Sure. So in the book, I actually have our carbon budget for the year before having the baby and the year of having the baby, just so people can see really clearly what's in there. I look at uh, home energy use that's not – whatever home energy use uh, that is not covered by renewable energy is part of your carbon footprint. Um, So in our case, we have solar panels, and so we don't have so much there. Uh, Transportation that uses fossil fuels, again, is is a part of your carbon footprint. Any materials you purchase. Purchase and the and the and the carbon that's used to create those materials. Again, if they're not made with renewable energy, um, food that's produced, food production, um, and food waste is a big part of our, our carbon footprint. And then I also include the energy I use at work. And then 
just to be totally comprehensive, I actually take my share of, you know, the federal government, state government, and, and city government emissions. And mm-hmm. then from that, to get my carbon footprint, I subtract things I do that are removing pollution from the atmosphere, like recycling materials that would otherwise be, uh, you know, releasing carbon in the trash, generating even more renewable energy than our family uses so that we can use some for others, um, you know, reducing the amount of energy that somebody else uses, planting trees. And so, so when, you, when you add up the sources of pollution and subtract the ways you're removing pollution, you end up with your carbon footprint. And so for us, you know, the challenge we laid out before ourselves is can we keep our family's carbon footprint going down even as we add a person to our home? And, mm-hmm. and so that, that was what we defined as, as a zero carbon footprint in this context. Well, let me ask you this. Let's back up just a wee bit further because, you know, I know that a lot of our listeners are very savvy, um, but some of our listeners are, you know, still learning where all of these resources are found. Can you talk about some of the calculators that you used? I mean, like I can imagine some of our listeners saying, if I open up my refrigerator right now, I have no idea how to calculate the carbon footprint of my food. And, you know, I, I don't even know where to get started if I look at my utility bill to figure out my, the carbon footprint of my home energy use. So can you talk us through a little bit more of the basics on that? Yeah, sure. So there are actually lots of online calculators, which are probably the easiest way to go. Uh, I don't, I, 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 if you just Google carbon calculator, in fact, there's, there's a plethora of calculators where you can figure out just by putting in information about how much energy you're using, where it's coming from, how much you're buying, and what your diet is. And the, the, that, those are really the big ones. The mm-hmm. big sources of carbon pollution are coming from when we're the way that we're providing electricity, heating, and cooling for our homes, the way we get around, and what we eat. And so, so the, those are the huge components. And so, while you know, it can be for me, you know, I'm a little bit unusual. I admit it. You know, some people like to count calories of what they eat. I really like. I really enjoy counting. Uh, you know, the kilowatts of electricity I'm using. So I really get down <laughs> into the weeds and every little detail. But in a big picture sense, all you really need to know to feed into these calculators is how much electricity are you using, how are you getting around, what modes of transportation, and what do you, what kind of a diet do you have in general terms. Gotcha. Now, you and your husband, as you mentioned, had a had a low carbon life before you had a child. I mean, you were probably in the upper. of the U.S. population in terms of the way that you lived your lives. Um, Why wasn't that enough? (laughs) You know, I mean, uh, what made you want to excel even further along your journey that led to a low or zero carbon footprint after the baby was born? What compelled you to, to do that? Well, I mean, I've worked on climate change for a long time and knowing what the different scenarios for the future were was a scary thing going into having a child because when I think about mid-century now, which is you know sort of a, a term that's used a lot in climate science, people talk about mid-century and 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 the, the number of heat waves that will happen at mid-century, how how extreme weather will be, how sea level rise will be impacted, impacting us by mid-century, and you know once I was pregnant, I started to think about mid-century in a really different way. My son was born in 2010, which is a nice mm-hmm. round even year, and so it's very you know in my face. Okay, mid-century, my son is going to be 40. That means he's going to be living through whatever choices that we make today that have a consequence when he's 40. And so... 
so, you know, the things we were doing um, before he was born just seemed insufficient in, or, in terms of protecting him and, and really, you know, doing everything we could to just show an example for people of, like, how normal and fun and easy a low-carbon lifestyle can be. Because, you know, in the end, it's not the individual action that's going to change the world, but, but it does show an example uh, that, it, that it's fun and it's easy. And I think that that's really important for society to have examples of people saying that. And, you know, I'm a little embarrassed to say that while we had done a lot before having a baby, we, we actually – we had a huge. We, we were far above average in terms of the pollution um, that that we were creating from taking flights, um, and really we had been taking an embarrassing number of flights, and that was a big part of what we eliminated in order to to do everything we could to uh, to to lower our pollution levels and you know get, give our son and other and all the other kids out there a real a real fighting chance. Mm-hmm. What were some of the steps that you took besides eliminating flights to address um, the carbon associated with your your transportation, but also your housing during what you called your nesting phase? So a lot of what we did was with the goal of automating the pollution reductions, just knowing how tired we were going to be, or at least here, I don't think anyone really understands until it happens. But <laughs> Not until you live through it. We would be tired, and we believe them. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. They were right. <laughs> you know, so a lot of our focus was on was on just making everything automatic. So, you know, we switched out all our light bulbs for LED light bulbs, all our, you know, shower heads and sink heads with low flow uh, sink heads, uh, you know, got the most efficient dishwasher that was available commercially on the market, most efficient washing machine, because, again, people told us we'd be doing more laundry, and they were right. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, we were really trying to automate things so that when that moment came, which it did, when, you know, I fell asleep on the floor and left the lights on. I didn't wake mm-hmm. up like, oh, my God, I can't believe I, was, I left the lights on. I woke up and was like, oh, I'll try not to do that again. But, you know, at least they're <laughs> LEDs. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and what were some of the uh, things that you did, you know, around your transportation? I know that you had some stories about, um, you know, how you considered uh, moving uh, or, you know, people people might consider moving into another house and some of the transportation um, considerations that they might uh, think about before they make those moves? What were some of those? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I find at least, I live in Washington, D.C., and I find around here there's a lot, there's a big tendency for people to move further away from public transportation when they have kids for really understandable reasons. You know, people want to, you know, a, a, a a yard and a better school and and really understandable reasons, but people very rarely think about the pollution implications of such a move if it's not done thoughtfully uh, because, you know, a bigger home creates more pollution. Uh, if you're heating and cooling that home with, with fossil fuel der- derived energy, the other thing is, of course, that if you become newly reliant on a car, that's really increasing the carbon footprint of your home because of where it's located. So, you know, we thought about moving. We ended up deciding not to move when we started to look at, you know, you know what the implications would be in terms of our pollution. And we also had to do a lot of research about how to bike um, with a baby, how how to get around without a car because we did not get it. We don't have a car, uh, and so so a lot of the research we did was just like, how do we you know, there's so much designed around you having a car. You know, for example, even when we were at the uh, 
at the breast at the birth center having our son, they said, "Oh, well, you you know, you're required by law to have a car seat in order to leave." And, mm-hmm. and it's just it's the norm for everybody to mm-hmm. have a car. So you really actually have to do a fair amount of research to to figure out how you know how you can can easily get around without one. And look, and you know, we 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 chose to live in a place where we could do that. Mm-hmm. Well, this is this is awesome, and I'm excited to hear more, and I know that our listeners will be as well. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we return, we'll have much more with Kaya Chatterjee and her new book, The Zero Footprint Baby. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you could all join us. And I'm glad that we've got our guest today because she's got a one-of-a-kind book. Um, We've never seen anything like this before. She's just released a book called The Zero Footprint Baby, How to Save the Planet While Raising a Healthy Baby. Her name is Kaya Chatterjee, if you're just joining us. And and I'd encourage you to get out on her website. It's kayachatterjee.com. Is that right, Kaya? Yep, that's it. All right. Get out there. Check out her blog. You can also uh, find a link to buy the book on Amazon. And truly, this is this is a, a great personal story, but there are a lot of other stories that are included in the book from other couples and their experiences. And there's also a lot of research in the book, of course. Um, and, and basically, what what I find so encouraging about the book, Kaya, is that you know we've heard 
so much from environmentalists, um, including those who've come on this show, talking about the adverse implications of the growing human population on the planet and that uh, the environmental degradation associated with with that population growth uh, may well overwhelm us. And so, you know, a lot of folks are thinking, well, maybe if we can get you know, a whole generation of, of folks who are in their childbearing years to rein it in um, and not have children, well, then maybe we would solve all of our problems. But one of the things that's so encouraging is to see a young, smart couple like you and your husbands challenging that and saying that's not the only way. We can, even here in the United States where consumption and energy use is high, which of course is what makes up most of our carbon footprint, we can raise a low or zero carbon footprint baby, and we can teach the next generation to do the same. And so thank you for writing this book. Um, I'd love for you to talk about your low-carbon prenatal diet because that's something that sometimes our vegetarian and vegan listeners uh, have run into some issues with. We've had uh, several prominent vegan moms who have given us stories about, you know, their their uh, obstetricians really being very much opposed to them staying on their vegetarian or vegan diets during pregnancy. And I'd love for you to share what your research and your own personal experience demonstrated about how to properly nourish the baby during pregnancy. Yeah, so I actually had the exact same experience. Um, you know, I went to my gynecologist when I when I uh, uh, first got pregnant and the first thing she asked me practically was, are, you know, are you going to stay vegetarian? And I said, why? Is there, you know, why are you asking me that? Is there, you know, is, should I be worried? And she just said, oh, I don't know. I just, you know, I just w- would be, you know, surprised if you were going to stay vegetarian. And I just thought, what a question to ask. And I thought, you know, obviously I would like to believe that uh, it's totally safe to be vegetarian for, be, during pregnancy because I'm vegetarian, but let me make sure, since I'm really motivated to believe that, let me make sure I'm right. So I did a ton of research and I found zero evidence that you need to eat uh, meat or dairy products during pregnancy. And in fact, uh, most of the the advice that's out there makes it very clear that during all stages of your life, it is completely safe to have a well-balanced vegan or vegetarian diet. Um, and I think it's important for people to to just keep in mind that you know they're like you know my my family is actually from from India. I was I was born in the states. My family's from India, and there are a lot of people in India who are vegetarian throughout their whole lives. Um, and and are just fine and and the same is true here in the United States it's it's easy to do and for me it's important because uh you know I became vegetarian actually for environmental reasons and when you look at the carbon footprint of different foods there's a huge huge difference you know with lamb and beef and some of the hard cheeses being really at the end of the spectrum where there's a lot of pollution whether you measure it by weight or by calorie or by amount of protein there's a lot of pollution per unit of food compared to if you're eating you know local seasonal vegetables lentils beans um, and even even milk some dairy is not is not as uh, as as high as 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 other dairy milk in particular is lower than cheese just because it takes a lot of milk to make a little tiny bit of a hard cheese. But, mm-hmm. you know, these are things, I mean, it was very important to me knowing that information to be able to maintain a vegetarian diet, and luckily I was. And the only way I was personally able to do that was actually by changing my prenatal care provider just because my doctor was not supportive of it. 
Wow. And did you eat any differently at all when you were pregnant versus when you were not? I ate more. Quantity. But other than that, not really. I would, I will say that I was probably a little bit more careful to keep a nice, colorful, well-balanced diet when I was pregnant. I just, I, you know, I was more focused on taking care of myself. Uh, mm-hmm. But, but I didn't change from being a vegetarian. Well, you know, your book also talks about various birthing options and the carbon footprint associated with those. And I have to be honest, I mean, that was something that I never thought once about. And, and you know, I know that may be shocking to some of my most green friends because I am a very green gal now. But when I was, in, you know, in that phase of my life, it was which military hospital was I going to give birth in? Because at that time, my husband and I were on active duty. And so I never even thought about any other option except going to the military hospital. Talk to us about the various birthing options and and what your research showed was the, the carbon footprint of those various options. Well, I think it actually surprises most people to find out how polluting our healthcare system is in the U.S. It's a very, very wasteful healthcare system. And uh, there was actually a, a paper that came out in the Journal um, of the American Medical Association, JAMA, that that it calculated it and showed that the U.S. healthcare system alone is 8% of our greenhouse gas pollution, which is pretty what? stunning. So just by comparison in the U.K., it's only about 3%. And so wow. there's just a lot of waste in the healthcare system that people don't realize. And so, so you're not alone. Most people are not thinking about this issue. And in fact, even when I told my midwives that, that you know, they, they were very much encouraging me to, to have a natural birth. And I just, I was like, oh no, I'm totally having a natural birth. I don't want the waste of that epidural kit. They, I mean, they just thought that was the funniest thing they'd ever heard. It's like, like, <laughs> it's not the normal rationale for wanting a natural birth. But, but it actually makes a huge difference. And, the, and all these things you can do to set yourself up for a natural birth, I mean, obviously you don't have final control, but you can, you can set yourself up to have that option of having a natural birth by keeping in shape, by, you know, by, by, um, you know, following uh, and by, by honestly, by going to have your baby in a place where most people have natural birth, you really increase the possibility of you having a natural birth. Um, and, and a lot of these interventions that happen during pregnancy these days are really totally unnecessary. And, and so if you have a care provider that's willing to, to just intervene only when it's necessary, you're going to have less pollution because every time you have to go into the hospital and have some kind of procedure, there's there's just a lot of waste involved, you know, and, and that includes everything from the electricity that's provided to the hospital, uh, the, the paperwork, the, you know, all the associated materials, which are mainly disposable, even though they could be recycled and it's safe to recycle them. You know, it's just, it's just this, it, it's, it's just a culture that really hasn't, hasn't gone green yet at this point, the, the healthcare system. And was there a, a, an environmental reason why you chose midwives versus a, a doctor or? Yeah, there was for me. I mean, a lot of it, again, was the amount of intervention that, that the midwives wanted to do versus the doctors. You know, they, they, they're just, they, they weren't as 
uh, you know, interested in doing procedures. They were they were much more, and they were much more supportive of a natural childbirth, which just requires fewer drugs, fewer uh, fewer materials. You know, literally mm-hmm. like the epidural kit, like I was saying. And so, so you know, when I talked to the midwives, they were very supportive of of having a natural childbirth. But then they were also really supportive of all these things that I was aspiring to do during pregnancy that I had researched to be safe, that I knew were more environmentally sound, like maintaining a vegetarian diet, like continuing to bike. You know, I I got a ton of criticism for biking while I was pregnant. Um, and I think that that's, that's lessening as, as bicycling is becoming more, more of the norm as a, as a way of transportation. But even three years ago, I was so criticized for bicycling while I was pregnant and, and mainly because people thought it was unsafe to be exercising, and it was it was nice to have care providers who who it's not just like they were just telling me what I wanted to hear. They actually had the same kinds of beliefs about pregnancy that this was just a normal thing, uh, a normal part of uh, you know uh, of uh, of our biology that we get pregnant and have babies, and we and we should treat it as a normal thing and not as a disease. <laughs> so true, so true. Well, now, how were you able to, once the baby was born, or actually, I guess probably as you were preparing for the baby to come, how were you able to lower the carbon footprint of things like baby gear, clothes, toys, and so many of the other things that, you know, seem to overnight fill a family's house <laughs> and when when baby arrives? How did you lower your carbon footprint with those items? Well, a big thing was just buying less. Um, and so in, in the book, I have, a, you know, the list of, of, you know, 10 things that I think you actually need when you have a baby. Um, and, there, and you know, even those, I think, for the most part, you could probably get away with not having. And, you know, the more I researched, the more I discovered that less is more. Um, and, the, and and there's so many things that you can get used. We got everything used, even the, the 10 things on our list. And, and there's actually a big move towards, um, you know, what's called collaborative consumption, which is this idea that rather than own something yourself, you can share it and then give it back or share it with others when you're done. And so, you know, car sharing is a big example of that, um, where there are companies where you just get a car for an hour or a day when you need it, and then you return it and somebody else uses it. Um, but I think that there, you know, these, you know, now that there's Craigslist and eBay and all these ways to share items with people all over the world, and there's even, you know, baby-specific ways of doing that, it, it makes it so much easier to, to, to not have all of this stuff. And, you know, I definitely had my moments where I thought, oh, my goodness, am I doing the right thing here? You know, all my, you know, not, not all, but many of my friends' babies just had a lot of toys and a lot of stuff. And I just thought, and, and, you know, they were doing it because they thought it was, you know, they were doing it because they wanted their kids to, to thrive. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, I want my son to thrive, too. And so I was just thinking, am I doing the right thing? And then I started doing all this research into uh, stuff and kids. And I actually found out that child psychologists want you to not have all this stuff. Because, you know, a, a baby, you know, of course, when a, ba- a baby baby, when they're born, I just think it's crazy that people are buying toys for baby babies. Because, like, you know, right when a baby is born, all they want is their parents. They just want to be <laughs> held. They really do not need it. They can't even hold the toy. You know, they're, <laughs> they're still, like, hitting themselves in the face. Um, 
And but you know, you know, once you hit kind of the six month mark, you know, they're interested in things around them for sure at that point. And you know, and and I found from reading these child psychologists that if you give them a cardboard box instead of buying them any toys, you're actually helping them out because the cardboard box can be a house. It can be a car, it can be a phone, it can be uh, even an animal sometimes for my son. And and that kind of play is what really helps the brain develop and enhances creativity and helps with kids having increased attention span and, you know, be, you know being forced to, to use their imaginations and play. And so all these things where I actually worried that I was doing something bad for my son, the more I researched, I realized that the less you buy, the better it is for your kids. Well, and not only does that lower your carbon footprint, that certainly lowers your uh, <clears throat> your budget, your toy budget. And any parent, some of us older parents who have done the big holiday, you know, here's all your gifts or here's your birthday gifts and notice that the kids just want to play with the wrapping paper in the boxes can tell you the same thing. They love those. So <laughs> uh, th- there's some informal research on that too, Kaya, just in case you want any <laughs> anecdotal data. Well, we've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Kaya Chatterjee and her new book, The Zero Footprint Baby. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be tuning in, my guest today is Kaya Chatterjee. And in addition to being the author of a brand new book called The Zero Footprint Baby, Kaya is also the Senior Director for Renewable Energy and Footprint Outreach at the World Wildlife Fund, one of my favorite nonprofit organizations besides my own. Um, she's been featured in multiple media outlets talking about climate change and sustainability issues, including USA Today, The New York Times, Fox News, the Associated Press, the Washington Post, and NBC Nightly News. And we are glad to have you on, Kaya. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Well, we've been talking a lot about various ways to get your home ready in a low-carbon way, get your transportation issues set, um, get some of that initial clothing and baby gear uh, in place when baby comes home. But when they come home, <laughs> that's when, you know, you, as you mentioned earlier, you're so tired um, that it is very difficult to think about anything besides the feed, burp, you know, and next thing, <laughs> diaper cycle. And so, you know, this is one of those issues because it's been so, um, so, you know, front page news in, in many times we've talked about the, uh, you know, the impact in landfills that disposable diapers have. And there's quite a movement to go back to cloth diapers. And uh, some people never went to disposable diapers because they intuitively knew that the disposable diapers were, you know, were harmful. But what did your research show and what choices did you make about diapers? Um, kind of share your perspective because you learned a lot more than, than I ever knew about um, cloth diapers that you uh, talked about in your book. Yeah, I could probably write an entire book just about diapers, um, but, but I don't know if anyone will read it. <laughs> Not sure if that would be a bestseller, but you know what? I agree with you. There's a lot out there. <laughs> so, I, you know, I think that – the big question people have is cloth versus disposable. So I started my research there, actually, and I started to try to understand what is the carbon footprint of each of these options. Um, and there's a lot of confusing information out there. But basically, the cloth diaper, the, the pollution associated with the cloth diaper is all in the use of the cloth diaper. The pollution associated with the disposable diaper is all in its manufacturing. And so if you use cloth diapers in a really low-impact way, they are much, much, much better for the environment than disposable diapers. If you use them in a very high-impact way, they're not that different from disposable diapers in terms of the carbon pollution. And so, for example, you know, I give a list of 10 things, 10 things you can do while cloth diapering to almost eliminate pollution from cloth diapering. And one key one is line drying. Clothes dryers use a lot of electricity, and if that electricity is not coming from renewable energy, well, that's a lot of pollution um, every time you run the dryer. Um, much, much more pollution than, than is coming from a washing machine. And so, so getting used cloth diapers is, an, is another way that you can um, reduce the carbon footprint of, of cloth diapers. And so there's a lot that you can do, but fundamentally, that's the difference. And, you know, I think that while it's really, really top of mind for parents because they, they're, you know, elbow deep in diapers for, for a <laughs> while there, um, mm -hmm. it's also, I think, important for people to realize that it's not an enormous part of your carbon footprint. Um, and so in the very, very back of my book, I have a comparison of the carbon pollution uh, created or, you know, or reduced by different actions. And cloth diapers 
for sure they save pollution if you're line drying them, um, but it's not it's not a huge huge difference. Um, now that said, it just personally just drove me crazy the idea of having disposable diapers. Like I just could not do it. I couldn't I couldn't be putting those things in the trash. And I found that I loved cloth diapers, and there were there were a lot of reasons to use cloth used use cloth excuse me, um, use cloth diapers beyond the environmental reasons. You know, they just, they're cute. Like they're very cute, the cloth diapers that you get today. And they, uh, you know, they just, they simply have more of what's called blowouts, which, you know, non-parents might not know about, but in disposable Mm -hmm. diapers, sometimes poop actually comes out of the back of the diaper and hits your baby's head. And that is not fun to clean up. Uh, yeah, and that's... I found there was much less of that with cloth diapers. But then what we did is take an even, a step even further, and we, for the first year, actually didn't use diapers at all and did something called elimination communication, uh, which is, you know, cueing a newborn baby to use the potty just right after they nurse or, or, or eat so that so that you don't have anything to clean up at all. And, and that was by far, I, I felt, actually the easiest way to go. Well, and I was reading that section, and I was I was imagining being able to do that with a first child, but for families who have a second, third, or more, I was imagining the chaos of trying to communicate with a two-year-old while you're communicating with a newborn. That would be a tough one. I'm not saying that it couldn't be done, but I could imagine that would be even more challenging if you had your hands full with you know, either additional children, pets, what have you, um, that, that could be tough, but, uh, my hat is off to you and the patience that it takes to do that. I think that's pretty awesome. Um, you know, I remember when I was, uh, a brand new mom and this was, you know, 21 years ago, um, the idea of breastfeeding my child was kind of shocking to some people in my family because, um, the, the generation that came before, um, was very happy with things that were packaged, things that were convenient, things that they saw as very modern and advanced like baby formula. And that was considered the thing to do. That was modern. That was couth. You know, uh, if you had the means, you did not breastfeed your baby. And I did the research at the time and realized that that was more healthy for my baby. And so that's why I made that choice. But I never considered the carbon impact of formula versus breastfeeding. And so I would love for you to share what your research showed on this issue. So I actually think that, you know, when I talked about this particular issue with people, uh, people find it generally pretty intuitive that it's less polluting to breastfeed, but maybe they don't necessarily know why. Um, and, and really, it's, it's about packaging and processing. You know, there's a lot of effort to turn either soy or cow's milk into something that's more similar to breast milk, and that simply takes energy to do. You're actually changing a substance chemically in order to try to approximate breast milk, which which, you know, they've gotten closer to doing over the years, but they still can't do it entirely, and it's very energy-intensive to do it. It's also very energy-intensive to turn it into a powder, to package it, to transport it. All of those steps take energy. And so if you instead are just, you know, basically eating a few extra calories in order to feed your baby, there's a much, much lower amount of pollution associated with that. Now, that said, you actually do need to eat extra calories even if you don't realize you're doing it when you're breastfeeding. I, it was very obvious to me. I was doing it because I was sometimes eating three lunches, but uh, <laughs> but sometimes people don't notice. And, and it's about an extra 500 calories a day. And so 
So it actually makes a big difference in terms of the carbon pollution, what those calories are coming from. There's a huge difference in the carbon footprint you're breastfeeding, whether you're eating those calories, again, from lamb, which is about the highest, and beef, which is on the very high end, versus from, from lentils or, you know, local seasonal vegetables, which are, which are the lowest uh, uh, carbon footprint items. And so that was an interesting finding to me that I didn't quite expect when I started doing the research. Well, and it is it is pretty intuitive, although I think that, you know, for someone like you who's a vegetarian, um, you know, on a low carbon diet to begin with, then you're really, really um, on a much lower carbon plane than someone who maybe, you know, is not a vegetarian eating a high carbon diet and breastfeeding. So, you know, it's all these things to take into consideration. But I really appreciated that part in your book where you illuminated that. Um, you know, this was a big question that you posed in your book, and I know that a lot of our listeners are probably thinking the same thing, and that is, what is the right number of kids for someone who considers himself an environmentalist? That's a very personal question, but I'd love for you to give us your perspective on that. So, I mean, there's obviously there's no right answer to this, but there's there's three kind of lines of, of thinking that, that you hear most frequently. And the one, one we've already talked about, which is there's way too much pollution in the atmosphere already. You know, the, the atmosphere is kind of like a bathtub and there's it's getting full of water. And so so you so having no kids is the best option. Um, also, given what you're bringing those kids into in terms of impacts, you know, the second line of thinking is, well, you know, at one kid you can probably eliminate some of the carbon footprint um from uh for you know be- be- you know from having that child and maybe even enough that you're reducing your carbon footprint more than that child is creating in their lifetime. That's really hard to do, but you can you can approximate it. And then there's people who say, well, you know, at two, you're kind of at the replacement rate. And then there are people who think, well, it doesn't really matter because this is going to make me be so much more committed to being an environmentalist. And, and, and so it, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter how many kids I have as long as I'm really committed. And I don't think any of those are right and wrong. I mean, our choice, you know, right now is to have one. Um, and, and a lot of people are, you know, a lot of environmentalists make that choice. And, you know, I couldn't help but kind of look around at what other environmental activists were doing, uh, you know, who are out there in the sphere right now, you know, people like Bill McKibben and scientists like Michael Mann. I just, I, you know, I, you know, even people like, uh, like Paul Ehrlich, who write a lot about population. I just thought, well, a lot of these, these folks have one kid. And, and for us, that was, that was the right choice. My, uh, my friend Leah actually says something all the time which I, I, I find more and more true as I see the world around me, which is that, you know, this is such a personal choice dri- driven by your personal experience. But she, she often says, you know, well, one, one kid's like an accessory and two, two is really a lifestyle. And, and <laughs> we, thought, oh, we, we like this accessory level. This, this is a pretty cute accessory and, and that works for us. Uh, that's pretty good. Well, we've got to take a quick break, Kaya. And when we come back, we'll have more on her brand new book, folks. Check it out, The Zero Footprint Baby. Don't go away. More Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us and very happy to have our guest today, Kaya Chatterjee. If you're just joining us, her new book, The Zero Footprint Baby, is all about how you can save the planet while raising a healthy baby. And it's available on Amazon. So check that out. You know, I found the chapter that you wrote on adoption to be really thought-provoking, and I hadn't really considered all the various ways that you evaluated adoption options. And I'd love for you to share with us uh, the the carbon emission uh, equation for each of these types of adoptions and, and talk about, you know, the environmental impact of, of adopting a baby. Sure. So adopting a baby is something that I actually didn't hadn't done that much research into until I was writing the book and I wanted to write about it. And there's no question that adopting uh, is by far the lowest carbon footprint way of becoming a parent. Um, but, you know, I started to look into, well, what, what if you choose to adopt? You know, what are the different options that you have uh, and what's the carbon footprint of those options? And when I looked into it, you know, it, you know, you know, perhaps intuitively, international adoptions had a significantly higher carbon footprint than local adoptions, and that's that's of course because of the international flights, which have a huge carbon footprint. But then also because you're taking a child from usually a pretty sustainable country where uh, you know there's less pollution per person to the United States, which is, has among the highest amounts of pollution per person. And so, so there's there's a difference between local adoption and international adoption. And I also found researching the book that, you know, I really didn't realize at all how many babies there are here in the U.S. and even in in local communities almost everywhere that actually are in need of adoption and are looking for parents. And, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I hadn't really realized how big those numbers were, but it was surprising to me to find that out because I, you know, I had seen so many people doing international adoptions. I just kind of assumed it was because they weren't able to do local adoption. So it was surprising to me to find how many babies there are out there waiting for a family. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And, and that was a great chapter. They were all great, but I really enjoyed that one a lot. What advice do you have, Kaya, for our listeners out there who want to follow in your footsteps? They're like, right on, count me in, but they don't have the support of their family and friends. What, what advice do you have for them? 
you know, and I wrote the chapter on, on bringing others on board because a lot of people are in that situation. And honestly, it's really hard when people are questioning things that you're doing. Um, and, you know, I think that when people do criticize you, I think it's really one thing for me is just to always keep in mind that it's coming from a good place and to try and restate their statement or their question in a way that's less offensive. And so if people are like, don't you think he has a cold because he's, you know, eating vegetarian? I say, you know, that's a really good question, you know, whether or not diet is associated with illnesses, and I've looked into it. And, you know, I just kind of restate things in a way that works for me, that where I can, like, calm down and answer the question. But I think important, it's, it's so important to find a community. So, I mean, I think a lot of the, the reason I wrote the book was also so people would feel that sense of community and know there are so many other families out there that are making these same choices. And there's, it's so easy to find a community online now. So there's places like Mom's Clean Air Force and Climate Parents, and there's just there's tons of places where you can find a community. And I would definitely encourage people to reach out and form that virtual community. And I think that most people will find that they can actually find people locally as well who are doing the same things once they start reaching out virtually. There's so many more people practicing these things than people realize. Even I, I had no idea how many of my friends were using cloth diapers until I started you know, posting on social media about it. Mm -hmm. Well, and you feel insecure enough as a new parent. I mean, every little decision that you make, um, you know, if if your mom or your aunt or your grandma or, you know, a good friend questions it, I mean, it can really cut you off at the knees because, you know, you're a newbie. (laughs) And even though you research things, you know, there is some um, collective wisdom that we hope to tap into um, from previous generations. Um, And so that that can be very a very insecure place to be. So it's good to have those resources to go to when you do need some support. Um, Beyond taking action to reduce the carbon footprint of your own family, you have some very specific guidance on broader advocacy to reduce carbon emissions. I'd love for you to talk about what you termed NAP time activism. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think I think individual action, as I said, is really important because it shows people what's possible if we get the right policies. But in the end, we have to get the right policies. And so that's why, you know, I wanted to share a little bit of the research about what the most effective kind of policy advocacies are. So, you know, it's really incredibly effective to tell your personal story, to say what you're doing in your life, and to reach out to your member of Congress, because they actually, believe it or not, do have to respond to what their constituents believe. And so, and the reality is that, you know, we we have a moral obligation as parents to do this for our kids, but in order for us to be able to get on the track of sustainability, we need to be able to break the stranglehold that the fossil fuel industry has on our democracy right now. And the only way we can do that is by voting and by being active in society. And it's very easy to feel like, oh, there's no point. You, how can you change anything? They don't care. But you have to remember that this is a democracy. They do care and they have to care. And research shows that they do respond to personal stories. Uh, and so, so so I spend a lot of time for that reason explaining to people what we need to do if we're going to break the strangleholds on our democracy that that they're that you know big oil currently has. 
Well, and you know, what about local advocacy as well? Because on the one hand, you know, the, some of the federal legislation would be aimed at things like cap and trade and lowering our carbon emissions um, and increasing our renewable energy portfolios. But on the local level, there are some climate change adaptation and, and mitigation strategies that we need to be thinking about as well, particularly if we hope that our children will grow up and live in the same place that we do um, to make you know, life sustainable and, and continue uh, the, the thriving communities that we hope to pass on to our children. What kind of local activism do you advocate? Well, there's, you know, I think one thing is that, you know, if people are on social media, which I, which I think is actually a really good way to do activism these days, it's, it's really important to be, you know, following your local elected officials and seeing what they're saying and seeing what they're doing and giving positive feedback when they're saying and doing things that are helpful. We actually have a resource on our website at at World Wildlife Fund, um, if you go to earthhourcitychallenge.org, where mm-hmm. you can write a letter to your local elected officials. Wherever you live in the U.S., you can click on a map and get to your local elected officials and urge them to take action. And th- and they're actually usually, you know, it takes it takes much, much less to get action at the local level in many cases. And so that can be a really rewarding way to start, for sure. Um, and, and it makes a huge difference. You know, just the trends that we see right now are really quite dramatic in terms of, especially in cities, that how much influence they have over pollution. So for the first time in history, more people live in cities than in rural areas. Mm-hmm. 75% of pollution is coming from cities. Like the pollution is much lower per person, but because there's so many people in one place, it's a great way to make a really big difference with, with local activists. And cities totally get this in a different way because mm-hmm. they're on the front lines. And the mayors, you know, when there's an extreme weather event and there's flash floods, they're the ones that have to deal with it if a family dies in a flash flood. Like, they get what's happening right now, and they're really motivated to do something, and they just need to hear that people are behind them to take yeah. steps to, that are, you know, even further. I completely agree. I think sometimes, you know, people get a lot of their news from cable news, and that's so incredibly hyper-focused on national issues, and that's not wrong. We need to be engaged in that, but there is a lot of state and local uh, public policy and public action that needs to be going on, including, you know, infrastructure updates that will help us, um, you know, thrive under climate change conditions in that mid-century to and beyond that we were talking about earlier. Um, you know, when I started my nonprofit organization, the Go Green Initiative, back in 2002, it was you know, meant to be an environmental education program for schools. And I was a PTA mom at that time. I had just gotten out of the Navy. And my feeling was, look, it is not enough to prepare our children for the future. We can do better than that. We need to prepare the future for our children. And since 2002, um, parents and teachers and principals and students from schools in all 50 states and in 73 countries around the world have gotten on board and have started to do things to lighten their load on the Earth's resources. So I believe, as you do, that parents have skin in the game. They have an investment in the future and an obligation to protect their children um, from harm. And so I think that they can be very power- powerful advocates. In the couple minutes that we have left in the show, I'd love for you to share your vision, um, what you believe parents could accomplish if we became climate crusaders, if we became those advocates that we really could be. 
Well, thank you for do, for all the work that you do. It's just amazing work, and you know we're we're obviously totally on the same page here uh, about the role that parents can play. You know, I I I think that the the potential is incredibly enormous because again, we feel this moral obligation. You know, ju- just like it's our responsibility to keep our kids out of the street or prevent them from falling into the pool, we got to protect the planet for our kids, and we as parents can totally do it. You know, I, you know, I often tell people, like, do not mess with a mama who is protecting her baby. Just don't <laughs> do it. Um, you know, and this is a country where, you know, we put a person on the moon. We decoded the human genome. We, we invented the Internet. Like, do not tell me that we can't slap a bunch of solar panels on roofs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, and, and a lot of the decisions that need to be made are decisions that families and parents will make. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, if you look at the potential of parents to make a difference here, we're talking about a situation where the technology to solve the problem is here. It's now. It's even a simple technology. It's renewable energy. And, you know, prices, even we bought our solar panels in 2008, prices have come down 80% since then. So, you know, you just imagine you go into a store and there's an 80% off sale. That changes everything. And so now it's not even just that we have really motivated parents. Those parents now have the opportunity to go to renewable energy and save money and do it with no money down and do it immediately. So there's just, there's so much that can be done in terms of immediate action and then and then the political power of parents, I think, again, can't be overstated. Like, there's a reason that every politician wants their photo taken with a baby. They care what parents think, and, they, and they, they're much more responsive when you tell these personal stories about how you're worried about your kids and how that keeps you up at night. And so, I, I, you know, honestly, I would not have had a child if I didn't think we were going to turn things around because the current trajectory is not one at which, in which humans are going to survive much longer. It's one in which my child, my own son, is going to have to really think, think twice, three times right. about whether he wants to bring kids into the world. And we don't want that, and we don't have to have it, and, and I Absolutely. fully believe we can avoid it. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Kea, and thanks so much for joining us to our listeners. More Go Green Radio next week. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.